Hello, and welcome to the B-Team Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Newt. Today, we finally get into Paul's story, except he's going by Saul in those days. And the switch to Paul, well, guys, it really isn't actually that much of a story. See, the writer of Acts, Luke, starts referring to Saul as Paul in chapter 13. Jesus didn't give him a new name or anything to signify his changed heart, so you can definitely challenge that if you hear that in a sermon someday. Remember, Saul was Jewish by ethnicity and heritage, but a Roman citizen. So it's likely that he had a handful of names, which was the common practice of the day. Something like Marcus, Antonius, Paulus, or something like that. Since it was common to drop the first two names, except for like on a birth certificate or a senate run, Paul was his Roman name. But Saul's parents were Jewish, and since they already had all these first names, they would have wanted to slip in a Jewish name as a nod to their faith and heritage. Remember King Saul from the Old Testament? He was the very first king of Israel, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, just like Paul and his family. So it's possible that Saul went by Saul while pursuing his studies and life in Jerusalem, which is where we first meet him. But once his ministry took him back out into the Roman world and he was writing to Gentiles or non-Jews, doesn't it sound likely that he started going by Paul? So all we're really likely dealing with here is a story of interchangeable names and how convenient that they rhyme. All right, guys, if today's scripture were a scene from a movie, we all know who the star would be. It's Saul. He gets the best part with the most drama. He's clearly the guy at the center of the action. People who have never even read the Bible, sometimes they even know this story. But as I read this chapter this time around, with an eye towards this little podcast and the Bible studies I teach full of working young adults and young families who are trying to piece together an ordinary career, home, life, I noticed just how many supporting characters step in to assist the lead reach his destination. And I got to thinking how in God's mission, you know, the one God is directing to bring many people to saving faith around the world, in God's mission, Saul can't happen without all the supporting roles. So listen for their stories as we read Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 31. Chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. See guys, Paul gets a bad rap that he's like a chauvinist, but he wanted to kill women too. P.S. The Way was the first moniker of the growing Jesus is Lord movement. They weren't called Christians or the church yet. Verse 3. As Paul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city. 
and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. All right, guys, we're about to meet our first supporting character. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Uh, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So Saul, word of Saul's mission to round up the believers had apparently spread. Verse 15, but the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus. P.S. Those believers in Damascus, guys, they played no small role in serving as Paul's first mentors in the faith. So he stayed with them for a few days, and guys, this is like so Paul. Immediately, verse 20, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused us much devastation, excuse me, the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus's followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. There's that top-notch brain and religious zeal that caused his meteoric rise in the Pharisaical circles, guys. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him, to kill Paul. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. It was really hard to keep dastardly schemes a secret these days, apparently. Verse 25. So during the night, some of the other believers, more unnamed supporting characters in Saul's conversion story, lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had indeed preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. P.S. The more I hear about Barnabas, the guy who donated the land, who was nicknamed Son of Encouragement, the guy who weighed the risks, prayed, and took a chance on Paul, the more I love this guy, and I'm so thankful for people like him in this story and people like him in my own life. 
So Saul stayed with the apostles, he meets Peter and John, and he went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. Things are getting awfully bloodthirsty down there. And when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Murderous plots, encounters with the divine, God speaking to people, fear and joy. Guys, this is some good drama. So think for a minute about who Saul was before this encounter that changed the course of his life and, frankly, history. His zeal for truth, as he understood it, had become marred by violence. Kind of like Simon the magician who Peter accused of gravely missing the heart of God, Saul too was missing the heart of God. In a sense, and I really don't use this word lightly, Saul was a terrorist. He was a thug. He was using power, connections, and violence and privilege to get his way. The Code of Federal Regulations defines terrorism as the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of a political or social objective. The bittersweet story here is that Paul would realize the error of his ways, and he would carry the awareness of his sin with him for the rest of his life. He's not a tragic character, but one who was allowed to see where his sin was taking him. He had experienced God's rescue, and he was channeling that same devotion and ambition that drove him to want to persecute the church towards now sharing the message of Jesus. Saul would not resort to violence again. He would be a man of prayer, persuasion, and utilizing that genius IQ God gave him to weave arguments for Christ that no one could refute. Because God had his eye on Saul from the day he was born, from before even. God knew the paths Saul would take, even the ones he would come to regret. And God knew that one day he would dramatically intervene. He would get Saul's attention in a way he couldn't refute, and then use that stubborn, radical, brilliant man to rock the Roman world, to write at least a third of the New Testament's 27 books, and to influence followers of Christ for centuries. Now for the main event, let's take a look at those people who helped in the making of Saul. First, Ananias. So Saul finds himself blinded by a mysterious divine encounter. After three days of fasting and praying, God sends a local man, Ananias, as an agent of healing. I love what Ananias says too. He's not trying to make a name for himself, trying to use this moment to leverage the launch of his new book. He doesn't take any credit. And in one word, brother. He welcomes Saul, this fearsome persecutor, 
murderer into a kinship of Jesus' followers. He approaches Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias is a messenger, an agent of healing. And just as significant, guys, he is a bridge builder to the Damascus church. God could have healed Saul on his own during a moment of prayer to show Saul his power, but God chose to use Ananias. Why? I can speculate all kinds of reasons here, but what leaps off the page for me right now is that God wanted to build a bridge for Saul to his first Christian community. Ananias was brought in on the plan in a major way. God spoke to him. So Ananias could vouch for Saul's authentic conversion at the next gathering of the way. He could corroborate, support, open doors. It wasn't just Saul's word anymore that he really had changed. It was Saul and Ananias' undeniable encounter. God loves unity, remember? And Saul needed a family of faith. Ananias was chosen by God to be that first friend, that first brother. And that's the way God wanted Saul's Christian conversion to begin. Second, we have the newly minted disciples of Saul as a supporting character worthy of a nod. By the way, it's okay for Paul or Saul to have disciples or students. That's how the whole rabbi thing worked back then. It was kind of like getting a bunch of followers and subscribers on social. Also, Saul didn't just want an audience to preach the message to. He needed a committee, someone who could set up the merch table, do crowd control, set up the tour, you know, answer the late night phone call to assist in a dangerous rescue mission, stuff like that. We don't know their names, but we see them risking life and limb to see to it that God's chosen instrument gets out of harm's way. Third, we've got Barnabas. Saul gets back to Jerusalem a changed man. You could see on his saved Insta stories that he really was preaching about Jesus. But a lot of people were still understandably skeptical. Was this just a ploy to gain an inside advantage to wreck the church from within? No one was rolling out the welcome mat for Saul in Jerusalem. But one brave soul decided to give him an audience. Barnabas calls him up and is like, all right, Saul, let me level with you. We just aren't sure if we can trust you. Can you tell me what's going on? So after a couple of whiskeys and some hugs and maybe a few tears and I love you mans, Barnabas knows in his heart that this guy isn't messing around. Saul's heart and mind and imagination have been captured by the profound work of God in Jesus Christ. Saul is the real deal. And so Barnabas was ready to vouch for him, to build another bridge, to open another door for God's chosen instrument. Saul would meet the apostles, the 12, and they'd stay up for hours, night after night, training him, talking him, uh, talking with him, taking him out on street evangelism, debriefing, swapping stories, marveling at Saul's ability to connect the theological dots. Okay, and then fourth and finally, we meet another group of unnamed disciples who help Paul escape again, this time from Jerusalem, gathering the supplies and donations that he might need as he made the journey of his life, leaving his would-be assassins in the dust. So in one chapter, Saul goes from enemy number one of the church to one of its most promising promoters.
know if this is an American thing, a young person thing, an ego thing, or just an Enneagram 3 thing. But I think we all have a tendency, when we read stories like this, to want to identify ourselves with the hero of the story. So when we read about Saul's incredible conversion from terrorist to apologist, we might unfairly compare ourselves. Our conversion wasn't so dramatic, or our life isn't so bold, or our ambition isn't so energized, our influence so profound. But there are so many important characters in this story, and just one Saul. So many men and women who saw what God saw when he made Saul and called him for this specific job. It is no less noble in the cause of Christ to support, to support someone's ministry than to be the minister. Ministers need budgets, mentors, followers, production managers, prayer teams, a cabinet. There are no superior and inferior jobs in the kingdom of God. And it is not a cop-out or less important when you, with your one and only life, are invited to play a supporting role. Because all of these roles are actually invitations. We aren't the director, remember? And most likely in our life, we'll have a handful of starring segments and a whole lot of invitations to play the equally important supporting characters. Let's remember that the lead actors actually need us as much as we need them. We need them to cast the vision, to go first, to lead the charge, and they need us to help make all that vision possible. So millennials, Enneagram threes and fours, I guess really all the numbers in some way, it's okay if we notice that our life is taking shape outside the spotlight our ministry calling taking shape in quiet, unglamorous corners of ordinary life. It's okay if the invitation on the table right now, at this moment in time, is of the supportive kind. Say yes to that invitation. Learn how to serve someone else's vision joyfully and trust that God knows exactly what he's doing in casting the show. All right, that's it, guys. Thanks for tuning in today to another episode of the B-Team Bible Study Podcast. Also, just a quick bonus note here. Thanks to those who offered feedback on how to handle these longer scripture texts. The consensus was that a little longer of an episode was okay, since even 20 minutes is still considered short for a podcast these days. So here's what I've decided. I'll cap my comments to 13 minutes. That way, we, with, bleh, that way if we have a longer scripture, we have a longer episode but we'll keep the commentary consistent for now. Thanks again and have a great week.